Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, you know, we try and keep an eye on current events Mm -hmm. um, that relate to our listeners, relate to women's issues. And so recently something that made the headlines uh, was the death of Wilma Mankiller. She died in early April, and she was the first female chief of the Cherokee Nation. And, you know, she just, because it was such a monumental achievement, she was heralded quite a bit during that that first week of, you know, her life, the loss of her to the nation, and just what her legacy was within the American Indian community. And we don't talk about, we haven't really talked about the American Indian community with on our podcast. Mm-mm. And so we thought it'd be really cool to get into Mankiller's life and show exactly what she did achieve. Right, because her story is also um, a great segue into what a lot of other women are doing um, among other American Indian tribes right now, and also what is going on with women in tribes we might not be aware of. Right. I mean, I had never heard of Wilma Mankiller, and the more I read about her, the more I was like, why haven't I heard about this? Exactly. Let's let's talk about who she is because it's a pretty pretty cool story. So Wilma Mankiller was born and grew up in an Oklahoma reservation. Her family was quote unquote dirt poor. This is how she described her her early life. They uh, according to a salon article by Andrew Nelson, the Mankillers frequently ate suppers with squirrel and other game. The house didn't have any electricity. Her parents used coal oil for light, and basically things got so bad that. Finally, um, her dad, Charlie Mankiller, decided to move the family out to California as part of a program that I believe was regulated through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it was kind of a sad story because it was this government plan to move American Indians out of the reservations, get them into more urbanized settings, and I guess sort of adjust them, if you will, acclimate them to... Uh, American, modern day American society. And it was a tough transition. I mean, the neighbors had to teach them how to use the telephone, but her father all along, you know, instilled pride in his kids about their heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, she frequently went to an Indian center in San Francisco. Um, she didn't really love school, obviously, because she was going through this tough transition and she got married right after high school, um, had two children. And, uh, you know, was kind of living this weird life in that she had this heritage that didn't probably fit in with the, you know, crazy San Francisco scene. But living in San Francisco allowed her to get her first real touch of activism. Mm-hmm. So in 1969, a group of, I believe, 18 American Indians go out to Alcatraz, mm-hmm. the island prison which was since abandoned, that I think at the time had been bought by some businessman who wanted to redevelop it as some kind of tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. And the American Indians went out, took over Alcatraz, and stationed themselves there to basically protest the Americans taking their land away, uh, you know, the founding of the country. I think they brought out enough beads and, like, it was something like 24 glass beads and cloth. It was whatever the price they paid for, or the the white colonists paid to claim Manhattan. Right. So it was just this big, you know, display of symbolism. Hey, you took this land. We're going to claim this land for us. Mm-hmm. And it it went on for like several months. And at first, Mankiller wasn't that interested. You know, her her family was a little bit involved in the protest, and you know, 
hundreds of people joined these 18 or 19 uh, Indians out on the island, and it became this huge, huge story. Yeah, celebrities got involved, per usual. So she writes later, uh, when, when Wilma Mankiller actually went out there for the first time, it really did give her a sense of pride. She had kind of always known about Native American issues, but this was sort of the defining moment she always talks about, where she has this sense of pride in her people, in her history, and she wants to get more involved with this community. Yeah, this is really a process of her reclaiming herself. And and part of that process involves her actually divorcing her husband because she ended up in this marriage that was, I mean, a pretty, pretty cozy arrangement for her. Her husband was, you know, it sounded like pretty well off. You know, she was very much the typical 60s housewife. But at the same time, he seemed pretty controlling. He didn't want her to have her own car, uh, certainly didn't want her to um, be working or being involved in in this American Indian activism. So she divorces her husband in 1974. Then she finds a job in Oakland as a social worker. And then she makes a very crucial decision. It seems like a wild gamble at the mm-hmm. time. She decides to return to her native Oklahoma, back to the reservation. She has no money. The car's gone. It's, you know, like you said, it seems like a huge gamble to have these kids and to be moving back into, you know, into her past. Mm-hmm. And back into poverty. She leaves California in a U-Haul with $20 in her pocket and basically just hoping that things are going to work out. So she gets back to the Cherokee tribe, and she finds a position as a community coordinator. And at this time, the tribe was trying to start operating or distancing itself from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is basically the government organization or government agency that was responsible for allocating federal funds to the different reservations and kind of saying what they can and can't do with that money. Right. So they were trying to, you know, find better ways to operate, to get out from under their thumb. And so now Wilma Mankiller has all this background in social organization from her time in California. She's gotten a degree at the University of Arkansas. So she really kind of has, you know, both the history and the experience to be part of this movement to, to reform the tribe. And then it's not until 1979 when she is involved in a very serious car crash that injures her and it kills her friend who is also in the car with her that she really hits this wall and kind of, it seems like she kind of goes through this existential crisis while she is recovering, going through the guilt of losing her friend in the car um, and really deciding what, what she's going to do with herself, how she's going to pick herself back up. And then in 1980, she's diagnosed with ther- a thermomuscular disease um, and she has an operation to remove her thymus that cures her of her illness. And so she gets back on the job in 1981. Um, and she starts getting involved with urban planning. Mm-hmm. And she oversees this very successful project of laying a 16 mile water pipeline that actually gets the different tribes people involved. They, each person involved is, is actually responsible for laying a mile of this groundwater that they can then, um, have fresh water piped into the tribe. And it really starts to reinvigorate this Cherokee reservation. I think they also had to do fundraising for each segment themselves. Mm-hmm. So this kind of is one of her hallmarks in that if we're going to get out from under the thumb of the BIA, we're going to solve our problems ourselves. Mm-hmm. And all this time, she's starting to catch the eye of the Cherokee chief at the time, Ross Swimmer. And he wants Mankiller to run as his deputy in the next tribal election, which she does. And they win. 
it went. Not that it was an easy path for her. As soon as he names her as the, as the deputy, she starts getting all these, uh, you know, awful threats to her life. Mm-hmm. Swimmers criticized for it. You know, she thought that it was because she was very liberal because she did say we can solve our own problems. We don't need the government, which was a very liberal stance to take within the tribe at that point. And rather than attacking her on her politics, as you might imagine, they attacked her for purposes of being a woman. Mm -hmm. Now, then something else very important happens in September 1985. Then President Ronald Reagan taps the Cherokee chief, Ross Swimmer, to become head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So that leaves Mankiller as the next in line. So with her uh, taking over the title, she becomes the first woman chief of any American Indian tribe. And she holds that position for the next 10 years, winning elections. It's not like she just had to sit there, you know, unelected by the people. Some of the elections in which she won, she won by landslides with the highest voter turnouts that have been seen. So not only did she come in just, you know, through good luck, she really galvanized the people and presided over a ton of accomplishments. Uh, for example, she oversaw the historic self-determination agreement so that the Cherokee Nation assumes responsibility for the BIA funds and, you know, takes on some of their own leadership in that regard. Uh, she oversaw a budget of more than 75 million. She helped the tribe publicize itself so that tripled enrollment, employment doubled under her reign. She built new health centers, children's programs. She was known for taking what are considered women's issues like health care, education for the kids, et cetera, and really making them the forefront of her administration. In fact, sometimes she was criticized for not doing what they consider the stereotypical American Indian things and like trying to build new casinos right. and gaming centers. Right. Getting the, getting the fast cash. She was really working on rehabilitating the, the community within the tribe because it's pretty well known that, um, American Indian communities have been racked with dire poverty, problems with alcoholism, domestic abuse, poor education. And Mankiller really left behind a legacy of making solid progress towards pulling them out of that. And I think that we should also note that while all of this is going on, she starts to battle lymphoma, breast cancer, and another of other health problems. Now, in 1995, she finally steps down, doesn't decides not to seek re-election, and she starts to just teach at Dartmouth College. But um, throughout all this, she's she's constantly dealing with, uh, with health issues. And when uh, she died in April, she had reached stage four metastatic pancreatic cancer. Yeah, one um, obituary noted that not only was she such a prominent female leader, but a prominent disabled leader as well, because she did have so many health issues. Now, let's talk about the name, Kristen, because if you are sort of this token woman who is leading your tribe, who is you're in the prominent eye and your last name is Mankiller, you know, that is... As she said herself, a lot of feminists would like to have that name. Not Mm -hmm. that feminists want to kill men, but she would, she had such a great sense of humor about it. She, you know, someone would say, Oh, is that your real last name? And she'd be like, Well, I earned it through reputation. (laughs) Um, so it actually is just an old Cherokee military title. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it was just lucky stroke of fortune. Um, but she has a lot of great quotes about how, you know, she was aware of her legacy. She knew that. There were lots of Cherokee girls that would have never considered that they could grow up and be chief. And now they could because they had seen a woman do it. They had seen a woman do it successfully. And now there are a lot of articles about how women are taking more of a leadership role within tribal councils. They've been giving a lot of educational opportunities in the last years and their ranks are growing. So 
it's always sort of attributed to the leadership of Wilma Mankiller. So just to give you an idea of how women are sort of rising through the ranks in the tribes, uh, according to the National Congress of Indians, by 2006, the number of women leaders of tribes was 133 among more than 560 recognized tribes. And that includes Vivian Juan Saunders, who became the first woman to head the Tohono O'odham Nation in Arizona in May 2003. We have Irma Vizanor, who was elected in June 2004 as the first woman to lead the White Earth Band of the Ohibwe in Minnesota. And then we also have uh, Cecilia Fire Thunder, who became the top leader of the Oglala Sioux tribe. And Fire Thunder is a good example of, despite the fact that we have all these women who are coming through the ranks, and that's fantastic, it is not without some controversy. Right. As soon as she took office, she faced all this criticism about how she was handling the the massive debt that had been handed to her by a long reign of male leaders and she was getting, you know, all these personal attacks and she there was a New York Times article where she was basically like, I don't want to say it's because I'm a woman, but what else could it be? You know, you're reading from an economist article that was like, Oh yay, Fire Thunder's been elected. Mm-hmm. A year later the New York Times comes out and she's like, This has sucked. I'm paraphrasing. She did not say that. But, you know, I am under constant attack that the previous leaders were not. What else could it be? But the fact that I'm a woman and she was very much like, I don't want it to be because of that. But, you know, that's the status of women within this community. Well, I think it's also interesting that instead of giving her the title of chief, she was given the title, I believe, of congresswoman. Mm -hmm. And so we have to talk a little bit about feminism within the American Indian community. And it's going to be much briefer than it than it deserves. But hopefully it's something we can kind of lay a foundation for and come back to later. Now, let's go back to the man killer. She was in the Cherokee tribe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're talking about how she faced this very systemic uh, viewpoint that women couldn't lead. And it, it goes back, of course, to the very long and sad history of how, you know, American Indians have been treated over time. Because before they were colonized, we found uh, from the North Carolina Museum of History a really great uh, outline of how powerful they were before old white man came and ruined everything. So back in the day, relatives were charted not through the fathers as they are today, but actually through the mothers. You were only related to each other through your maternal side. Mm-hmm. And then the households were really overseen by the women, not just in terms of women taking care of uh, clothing and cooking and all of that, but they were actually the ones out in the fields gathering the foods because the men would either be engaged in warfare and out of the house or they would go on extended hunting trips. So it really was up to the women to keep everything going while the men were out. And then funnily enough, if let's say a guy and a girl don't get along too well, their marriage isn't working out or their union is not working out, the guy would just leave and go back home and live with his mom. Yeah, it was the woman's home. And if he did leave, he lost basically all rights to the children because, Mm -hmm. as you said, it was a matrilineal kinship system. The children weren't technically related to the father. They were related to the mother. And the most important male in in a child's life, according to this museum of history, was the wife's brother because that's how strong the uh, female influence was within just one given family. So I think that you could say that in a way, this resurgence of women leaders in American Indian tribes is really just getting back to the way life was a little bit, in Mm -hmm. a very small way, before white colonists came in and 
basically ruined everything. And now you can probably tell that that's like an uncomfortable thing to say. It's very hard, I think, for anyone discussing history to to talk about maybe the own the part that their own race played in it. You know, Kristen and I weren't around, but the way the history goes, the white people came in and made the Cherokee Indians model their life after them, and that's when women lost a good deal of power. And so that's why the term of feminism has been very tricky within the American Indian community, because the way I became familiar with Mankiller's passing was through a lot of feminist blogs mm-hmm. um, who were saying, oh, look at this great woman leader who who died and let's celebrate her rightly. Um, but, you know, there is this problem of what feminism and what a woman's role within these communities is. And when you go back and look at this matrilineal society that Molly and I talked about a second ago, it's understandable that this concept of feminism might rub American Indian women the wrong way because this seems like a construct that white women in particular created in, you know, the 50s and 60s with second wave feminism, Betty Friedan, et cetera. Uh, and they're saying, well, wait a second. No, you're simply having to reconstruct what we enjoyed before you guys came along and enforce patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So Chris, we could probably talk for days about this issue of feminism for women of color. It's a tricky issue, but we just wanted to acknowledge it and say, you know, it's it is kind of weird that we're sitting here discussing what feminism means for them, but it's it's a tricky it's a tricky issue. Right. I think the point that we have to acknowledge that for for women of color, simply taking the label of feminism might not be enough because not only do they have to deal with the issues of being a woman, but also deal with the issues on top of that with being a minority in society and building on that for American Indian women in particular, Molly and I did not realize um, one of the major issues, even more so that they have to deal with than other, uh, more than black women, more than white women, other um, racial groups in the United States is the issue of sexual assault and domestic violence. Right. According to the New York Times, Indian women suffer two and a half times more domestic violence, three and a half times more sexual assaults, and 17% of those women will be stalked. So um, disproportionate victimization in in crimes. And, you know, I don't want to turn this, you know, what we're trying to make a celebration of woman man killer's life into a podcast about rape, but it's just something to be aware of in that, you know, women are in this situation, and man killer has been a really great voice for trying to lift them out of it. Well, and I think that the the issue of sexual assault and how it is handled is also another example of um, just the tricky politics of life on the reservation because if a woman is raped by a man who is not part of the tribe, um, she cannot take that case to tribal government. They can't be tried. But then if she goes to, say, the municipal police outside of the reservation and says, hey, this this white guy or whoever raped me, um, they also don't. The police don't want to come into the reservation because they'll say, you know, this is not their not their jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And then the woman is basically left in this position of not being able to turn to anyone. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times a lot of these crimes go unreported. And some of these organizations like the National Organization of Women estimate that the uh, or guess that these statistics are probably even even higher because the women don't really don't have any place to turn at all. And so um, they're really trying to lobby for a lot more support specifically for women in reservations, because on the one hand, we have this great success story of people like Woman Mankiller um, and just women in general 
American Indian women in general who are on the whole more educated. Um, they're the ones going to college more so than American Indian men. But at the same time, day-to-day life is still very much a struggle, it seems like. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, you know, this podcast might have seemed a little bit all over the map, but I think that, you know, we are white feminists and maybe we haven't been broad enough in bringing stories like that into our podcast. And I also think, Molly, that it's really good to, at the same time, honor Wilma Mankiller and the legacy that she leaves behind, but not necessarily allow all of those those high points to distract us from these very deep um hurtful issues that are still going on today that need, you know, that need public awareness. I didn't know about this before mm-hmm. the issue of sexual assault and domestic violence. Um, I, did, I, I was not aware of that before this podcast. So just broadening our, our viewpoints on what's going on in the world for women. Mm-hmm. So guys, as always, we'd love to know your thoughts on our discussion, any experiences, any questions. Let's hear them. It's mom stuff at howstuffworks.com. And we'll do some listener mail right now. So today we're going to read an email from Emily who writes, I found the shopping gender stereotypes podcast very amusing because according to those stereotypes, I shop like a man. When I find what I want, I buy it and move on. My boyfriend, on the other hand, can spend forever deciding what type of mustard to buy. I can go finish shopping for the rest of the groceries and he's still in front of the mustards deciding. Not that I don't like to browse on occasion, but how long can you really contemplate mustard? A few months ago, my landlord was a few days late withdrawing my rent from my bank account. I called him to make sure everything was okay on my end, not wanting any possible late fees. He said they were a few days late due to the holidays, but they will withdraw it. So don't rush out and go shopping, he said. And as Emily rightly says, jerk. (laughs) Although I was polite on the phone, I resented the implication that because I'm a woman, I must not know how to manage money. And I do think that landlord was a pretty big jerk. (laughs) Well, if you've got any emails, send them our way, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we have a couple new ways you can get in touch and follow me and Molly. First of all, you can do that on Twitter. We have a Twitter account. It's momstuffpodcast. Head on over there. Join us. Follow us. We will send you delightful tweets at random times during the day. Uh, and then you can also become our fan on Facebook. Hey, how about that? Or just stuff mom never told you. Join our fan page. We promise we will not um, bombard your wall with a lot of useless updates. But, uh, you know, we'd like to see your face. And then finally, we have a new blog. It's called Stuff Mom Never Told You to take over. You might remember our old blog, How To Stuff. We got a couple new people taking that over. So that Molly and I can devote ourselves to all things mom stuff. And you can find that new blog and other articles at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?